You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with always typical lydia today's show we're going to be doing the 1993 del toro film chronos it's his debut at that Mm-hmm. this film came to my attention through a friend of mine matt burnett he had the film in his collection he tossed it my way and said dude you are going to like this movie you should maybe one day do it for splatter pictures and i did actually watch it and then immediately do it for splatter pictures as a written review of this film. This isn't the first time that we've done an episode of the podcast when I've already done a written review. Not only do I feel like I've grown as a person who is able to communicate his interpretation of media, but also that's a 650 to a thousand word review. And this is a podcast. So it's much more fun to listen to it this way. Oh yeah. But if you're curious, you can go over to Google and Google splatterpictures.net slash chronos or use the search function on splatter pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You will definitely find the written article. I read back because I don't remember what I said because you know it was a few years ago at this point. Yeah. And it seems to be very, it, there's not a lot of analyzation. What it really seems that I've done is just kind of explain what the movie is about and then say what I liked and what I didn't like. It was very dry. I think it was when I was trying to find my footing a little bit in how I'm going to be reviewing films. So it wasn't a lot about the vampire angle? You didn't... Uh... N- no, and I squeaked it in at the end there. Oh, wait a second. This is a vampire movie. <laughs> kind of like how they do it in the film itself. I didn't really talk about any of that kind of shit i guess i was kind of trying to keep things concise and a hard time back in the day of keeping reviews at a readable level where it wasn't just a whole bunch of extra information plus that might have been the time in which i was doing two reviews two separate reviews for horrormovies.ca and then also spotterpictures.net and so i might have just been trying to bang them out more quickly it is sort of squeaked in at the end that this is a vampire film. And that's part of why I chose it for our blood-soaked guide to the non-vampire vampire films. Yeah. We're covering right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Horror Hand Radio just did a really good episode all about vampire movies. So if anyone's interested in listening to a whole bunch of vampire films get talked about, uh, check out the Horror Hand episode. Um, it's cool. I don't even think they mention chronos at all in that when i was kind of surprised but one movie they do mention that i brought up while we're watching this is dead and loving it with leslie nielsen the (laughs) stupidest non-vampire movie vampire movie ever yeah yeah but it's only because our lead here looks a little bit like leslie nielsen (laughs) in certain aspects we were talking about Dracula dead and loving it when we were watching this movie which is hilarious because if there's one movie that I never thought I would ever talk about with you ever mm-hmm. is Dracula dead and loving it I think that th- that was real the real moment where I was where I feel like I had outgrown Leslie Nielsen when I was a kid I loved spoof comedies I loved airplane and the naked gun movies and wrongfully accused and all that kind of shit and I remember being generally excited to see this. I knew it was a Mel Brooks movie and I was a big fan of Young Frankenstein. So I thought that we'd be kind of maybe in the same vein, but geez, 
I, it wasn't even like, I think this is a bad movie. I was just thought to myself, this is not funny and this isn't primarily a comedy. But I will give it up to his attention to detail. And the, the actor, who I can't remember his name, that was playing Renfield, does a very good job playing a very manic, if not comedic, Renfield. Not like Tom Waits? No. <laughs> no totally removed from Tom Waits? Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, kind of in that camp, maybe. So you can see that, as you were saying while we were talking, clearly Mel Brooks is a fan of the classic monsters, but... Anyway, we're fucking off uh, yeah. in, the, in the woods right now. It is because it's a totally different type of vampire film. So we can have a totally different kind of podcast. We can go off in the woods. That's fine. That's fine. That's <laughs> fine. Um, and if we're in the woods, we might find a werewolf, which there's something to be said for a lack of werewolf movies, really. Maybe it, we should do a werewolf extravaganza. I would love to do some werewolf movies. That'd be really, really cool. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like that this is a complete 180 from where we were last week with the jang shi which is a completely different sort of vampire completely different take on a vampire and we've both we've hit like two no fang vampire movies mm-hmm. which i really enjoy mm-hmm. um i wrote a vampire book once you did and if you guys uh, are a fan of lydia's writing at all and you haven't read night face good god man or woman what's wrong with you because I definitely read it. I love that book. Uh, it's really good. It's got some fucking fantastic ideas, unique ideas. What I always gave you credit for, for Night Face, was the fact that, not unlike Kronos, you took something uh, that we're familiar with, the idea of vampires, and then you did your own thing with it to create something familiar, yet at the same time, wholly unique. Except in that one, it comes at you pretty soon that it is a vampire film. In Kronos, it's something you almost have to piece together and i honestly someone could watch all of chronos and not get it and not understand that this is a vampire of any shape or form because it is so unique mm-hmm. it only has a few things that resemble vampirism in it at all mm-hmm. really it it feels so very unique also because it's so stylized and so visually different than the vampires that we're so used to Mm-hmm. That he almost gets away with making a vampire film that's not a vampire film 100% at all. But it is. So here we are. Uh, speaking of my work and Night Face, I have a new book out. And in looking at some of the promotion, sort of backwards engineering some of the promotion I'm doing for Prey Light Eve 2 right now, I had noticed somebody had tweeted a couple years ago, uh, the weirdest book that they've ever read was Night Face by Lydia Peaver. And then they turned around <laughs> over the next few days and recommended it to a bunch of people, which was really nice to see. And I'm oh, sad yeah. I didn't see it at the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's definitely the type of boost that you always need. It's it's fun when people – because I'm sure when you try to create fiction that – other people come into a vampire story understanding in their head what they believe vampires to be. And to, to have somebody read your story and to just get it that's weird and wild, but in a very good way, and they start recommending to other people, it enters that category of horror that you just got to share with people. I guess so. I guess so. Because that's Especially the- this film. This was one um, a Del Toro film I'd never seen. Mm-hmm. And Chris heavily recommended it. He's a huge fan as well. And he had sent me Devil's Backbone, which I enjoyed thoroughly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel that this and Pan's Labyrinth and 
Devil's Backbone all sort of go together really well as far as the I, I hesitate to say typical because it sounds like derogatory, but it's like the typical Guillermo del Toro's view of children and very interesting and dark situations viewed through a child's eyes, mm-hmm. right? And they've got a little angle of that with Aurora in Kronos. Mm. Del Toro is, a, is a, a, a filmmaker, an artist that loves fairy tales, loves folklore, loves humans' relations to folklore and how he says it himself, we're the only animals on Earth that create fairy tales. He finds that fascinating. And also his connection with children. The guy really knows how to write children characters that and find the right actors to pull off some of these roles. Some of the like in Pan's Labyrinth this is a very demanding role for a, a young actor to, to sit that's in every fucking scene, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Also splicing around a lot of normalcy into his fantastical stories and really focusing on the aspect of a child which is to be so accepting because you read fairy tales and fantasy and all this kind of stuff a lot when you're a kid and your imagination runs so wild and you haven't had the real world sort of beat a lot of logic and naysaying and and real life the the business of being an adult has not yet encroached into your mind so many stories of fantasy and fairy tale involve a kid waking up in, in and everything's normal and then they look out into their backyard and they see a gnome and then they follow that gnome into a tree and then the tree brings them to a whole new world so when kids are presented with these crazy concepts they don't even really ask for explanations they just go with it and he has all this kind of shit still in his storytelling and i think that it's always but it's never you know, like it's not—it's not in a shitty way. It's not in like, oh, here we go, another Del Toro movie. Therefore, I know exactly what I'm getting. I don't really fucking think you ever really know what you're getting with this dude, even though he has a lot of familiar signatures. And this film has signatures in it that are unmistakably his. Which is cool because you can you can take all of his films and mix them up into a big jungly juggle pile and pick one out and have someone guess like. Here, watch this and tell me where you think this fits in the timeline of del toro films and it's really tough because you look at chronos which is his first feature-length film and it's got all of these things these clockwork things these um dark events through child's eyes uh children's reactions to dark events uh cockroaches mm-hmm. stuff like that that are present in so many of his films up until even now and it's hard to, to put it on that timeline except by how old ron perlman looks <laughs> doesn't really look old or young he just kind of looks like ron perlman to me. well and there's a huge difference between this and uh even the way he looked in the last winter which is one of my favorite ron perlman movies i'd watched ron perlman for the very first time on screen in city of lost children and the city of lost children comes out a few years after this like one or two years after chronos does but to look at ron perlman now he's definitely uh, a little older Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, in Pacific Rim, he's sporting ghost white hair and and stuff like that. Yeah. That's the only way that you can really age these films, unless you're going to, like, critique lighting and and film stock and stuff like that to try and figure out how old they are. It's kind of a timeless tale. Most of his stories are. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it really doesn't seem like a debut feature 
at all. No. It's very tight. It's very rich. It's polished. It's wonderful. It's crazy to me that this didn't even make back half of its fucking budget. It just goes to show you that sometimes, both with it being a foreign film and also being hard to categorize, how do you market a film like this? Do you market it as a horror movie? Do you market, at, market it as a, like a drama, crime drama? Like how, do you, how do you market this? That would be the biggest problem. And that's always been the biggest problem for filmmakers. Mm -hmm. It's not so much making their movies, although there's tons of stories where making the movies themselves is the biggest hurdle, but letting, how do you let the audience know how to find you? How do you let the audience know what they're going to watch? And a lot of films and directors, especially auteur directors that love to blend genres have a hard time with their marketing. You look at a lot of uh, filmmakers who have big successes on their hands, their earlier work, it doesn't really make a lot of money. And like somebody like Carpenter, who's like one film makes a lot of money and then the rest of his films that become cult classics that everybody loves, they didn't ever really do that great at the box office because they're weird. <laughs> because they're weird. <laughs> they're weird. It's like, what do you what do you call this? Is it science fiction? Is it horror? Is it an action movie? Is it a comedy? What is this? And that's really where the trouble lies, I think, is just <clears throat> as simply in that they're weird. They're, they don't fit neatly into just one category. I'm having this trouble now, and I've always had this trouble, not so much with Night Phase, because that's easy, vampires. Chronos uh, could be easy, vampires, if it was like all about vampires, but it's not, so it's too weird. My writing right now, it's hard to categorize. It's weird. I don't know where it fits, really. And it feels weird saying that it's horror, where it feels kind of weird saying Kronos is horror because it definitely has horror elements. And I wouldn't want to pitch it to someone who hates horror, but it doesn't neatly fit anywhere. Now, I'm going to stop talking about my writing because we're going to get to that near the end of the show. We're going to read an excerpt from the new book, Pray Light Eve 2. Mm -hmm. If you're interested in the meantime, you can go to amazon.com slash author slash Lydia and read up on my writing. But we're going to have an excerpt later on. And it also helps fill our little gap we have here because we didn't do anything for women in horror month. No, it didn't happen this year. No. I'm a woman. You are a woman. I'm in horror. You are a woman in horror. I'm speaking out of my vagina right now. It's it's coming loud and clear. Yeah. It works great. You know, <laughs> that works for women in horror. So that's what we're doing. Uh, we're going to read a little excerpt from Jack in the Box, a story that is uh, very much about women in horrific situations and the male gaze, as it were, but a very warped idea of that from uh, the perspective of a 12-year-old boy. It should be quite interesting. Yeah. You get to do some acting. Get yeah. To, get, to, get, to, get to read. I did a little voice acting on the Wicked Library, so if anyone wants to hear that. Episode 710, if you guys want to check out episode 710 of the Wicked Library, you can see Lydia match wits with that dastardly crafterly evil librarian i love misunderstood. The librarian. yeah i i love the librarian we had a lot we had a blast doing that and i was very flattered and very pleased and i'm just very very humbled that i was invited to do that i'm more humbled being invited to do the intro and the warning alongside the librarian than i ever have been when i'm asked to have a 
story on the show and I love having my stories on the show and that is a flattering humbling thing but this was just like Christmas it really or more like Halloween mm-hmm yeah. Christmas ween Halloween yeah it's actually really good because who would have guessed that you were able to you know do voice work alongside a loudmouth bombastic weirdo I know right it's almost <laughs> like I had practice right. Almost 100 episodes worth of practice. <laughs> We're here at what? Episode 93? Uh, yes. Not too bad. Not too bad. Everyone else has more episodes than us, Wes. 700 and what? 710. <laughs> you know, that's awesome. They're, that's why they're an award-winning fiction podcast. I mean, if there was awards for just being fucking cool and hot, then you give it an award to Bind Torture Cast. I was on episode 162 of Bind Torture Cast recently as well. We covered Cat Sick Blues, Mm -hmm. which is, fuck, man, one of my favorite films now of all time. It's got to be up in my top ten. It really is. But it's not available here. So we were really lucky to get a screener and watch this Australian horror gem. It's probably, it's almost one of those movies that's impossible to suggest to people. Because it might be too fucked up for lots of people. Might be even too fucked up for me, my tender disposition. You know how I get, Lydia. I'm going to watch this film. My nerves will be all jangled and shit. Won't so, sleep. So like you got jangled wearing Kronos and they're sewing up the corpse's mouth? Shut up. What? Yeah, I finally discovered something Wes doesn't like, guys. I don't like mouth trauma. I don't like people mixing eggs and gelatinous egg whites. Yeah, you don't like people brushing their teeth either. Fuck that. <laughs> Fuck that shit. For a film that doesn't have any toothbrushing scenes, and I'm going to have to double check on this because this has been a burning question in my mind. And when I was on air with them the other day, I didn't ask. Luke Raymer has a film coming out, The Taxidermist. They're filming right now. You can go and check out the West Second Productions site. The Taxidermist has a Facebook page as well for some behind-the-scenes shots. And now I'm really curious, because I'm excited to see this film come out, if it has any toothbrushing scenes. I want Luke to just put 10 to 15 minute, put it anywhere. I don't care where. Probably right in the middle. That'd be the best. Here's this character just brushing their teeth. Slow circle brush spit slow circle brush spit all different angles Ugh. maybe a nice shot of all the spittle in the bottom of the sink and they put their hands in it oh fuck that's so gross and that's okay i get how people feel when they read the evisceration and body discovery scene in knife face okay i get it now I get it. I found that scene quite clinical and very well written. And you're getting squeamish over just a needle. They don't even show the needle going through the gum. It's the suggestion of the needle. Wow. Wow. No autopsy footage for Wes. You should see me at the dentist, man. I fucking, when they're going to, I mean, I keep my cool. I'm not going to wig out. I am an adult man, but... Oh, fuck, man. Your insides are just wriggling like you're made of snakes. (laughs) I feel like my grip could rip the arms off the chair that I'm in. I just cannot fucking stand it. That's crazy. Okay. So we'll be having to choose some films coming up in the future that have a lot of mouth trauma, just so I can see Wes squirm in the corner of the couch for once. (laughs) Instead of this 15-minute toothbrushing scene and someone mixing ketchup into gelatinous egg whites and yolks. Okay. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, we'll have an excerpt of a story from Pray Light Eve 2 at the end of the show. Yeah, so you're going to want to stay tuned for that, if nothing else. Yeah, and, and more pluggery and tomfoolery, of course. But 
Um, yeah, back to Kronos. I had purchased this at the turning point and it was quite a find because mm-hmm. it's not easy to find no. at all. When I got my copy, it was first I, I watched it as, as a loan. When I did the review for splatterpictures.net, it wasn't my actual film. It was just something that my friend let me borrow. When he was downsizing his film collection, he tossed it my way. After I had watched this film, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And so I wanted to buy a copy for myself. And I can't remember where I looked. Likely at the time I looked on eBay. And holy fuck was this movie expensive. And I don't remember if it was ridiculously expensive, as in we're talking a couple hundred dollars. But I think it was just way out of my price range where I was thinking to myself, this is way too expensive for a fucking movie. And so I was very fortunate when he he was downsizing his film collection and he gifted it to me. And then when we were at Turning Point, I think it was one of the first, it was the first time I was ever there that we were going through that guy's, that that had shuffled off this mortal coil. Yeah, the dead guy. The dead guy. He had left behind a big horror movie collection, which had some fucking cool ass shit in it. Really cool ass shit. And there's even stuff that's still on the shelves there that I swear have come from the dead guy. Mm-hmm. Like that film that me and Chris watched and talked about on the last show and he talked about on the previous Bind Torture cast, Retribution. Mm-hmm. I, no one else in the planet would have bought that film. I swear it came mm-hmm. from the dead guy. And Kronos definitely came from the dead guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so three cheers to the dead guy. Mm-hmm. And Wes had put it quite eloquently that uh, when he dies as a horror fan and collector and someone who does have a large film collection, they could only hope that someone like me ends up with one of their films. Yeah. I'd like to add to that. I could only hope that someone like me who's going to share the film, give three cheers to the dead guy and talk about a film that he had purchased and probably loved as much as we did on our show. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you, dead guy, whoever you are. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, dude. And uh, thanks uh, to his family who didn't just throw it in the garbage. If he had a family. I'm just assuming if if he had a film collection like this that was this big. And there's some titles in there that we didn't even pick up. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I always would hope that when I eventually die, people will take the time to... I mean, yeah, like not everything in my film collection is all that great. But I have some rare titles in there that I would want... The opportunity for other horror fans to have, too. Yeah. I, I don't want it to just go in a box in the garbage. Thank you, Dead Guy, for Kronos. Yeah. I really enjoy this on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Even if it didn't meet its budget, even half of its budget. Mm-hmm. It debuted at Ken, And I don't understand why there aren't more people like me who would applaud this film, who would be still talking about it as we are today, or demanding a re-release. I don't know. A lot of his films deserve re-releases, I think. Yeah. So I don't understand why it's so such a hidden gem, but it is. And I think everyone should seek it out. It's got to be available on iTunes. I haven't looked. Yeah. When it comes to Del Toro, I mean, a lot of people just stick to Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy and even films like Blade 2 because the thing, Del Toro... Or Puss is, in Boots. Puss in Boots? Puss in Boots. Really? He's an executive producer of Puss in Boots. I had no idea, but great. <laughs> Del Toro is is one of these filmmakers that has really crossed over and has managed to stick to the types of stories that he wants to tell while still being able to get films greenlit that have humongous budgets. I don't know anybody other than Del Toro that could have gotten Pacific Rim 
made a fucking giant kaiju movie it's like no one else is gonna get that where you have a woman with a fu- in, inside of a robot with a giant sword yelling about her ancestors sh- chopping a giant monster in earth atmosphere in half the cool like, i'm watching this movie i was like oh my god i love that this fucking exists no one else would have been given the millions and millions of dollars that that movie was budgeted Unless you had surefire hits on your hand. This dude coming out with... But he also has like films that are like The Devil's Backbone, like Kronos. Films that are extremely well made, but so weird and, and, and not really talked about. Of his classic Del Toro films, it's Pan's Labyrinth that seems to get the most attention. Of his, what I'm, you know, left of center films that he's made Mm -hmm. it's foreign it's weird it's got an abstract ending and it it has a lot of trappings that could easily make it as shuffled and unknown but it just resonated with people and everyone was talking about pan's labyrinth when it came out well why not go back into the producer's back catalog and go seek out his uh, debut feature i don't understand people do it with other names all of the fucking time but i had never even heard of it and I was a fan of this director. And not only that, but I was a fan of Ron Perlman. And you're a fan of vampire films. I know a fan of vampire films. I I did not, it didn't ring any sort of bells. It wasn't one of those things where, oh yeah, I, was, I meant to watch this. I didn't fucking even know it existed. The only way I knew it existed was my friend uh, Kelly. She's a, an Ottawa author and uh, a coworker of mine now. She uh, is a huge fan and has collected his films, and she was the first to mention it. So when Chris had mentioned it, I had heard of it, but it was not on my watch list because I am uh, fucking stupid, basically. <laughs> and now I just can't shut up about it, obviously. Mm-hmm. We're beating around the fucking bush around here. What is this movie even about anyways? It is about the lost toy art of Falconelli. <laughs> and you'll see it soon, I'm sure, on an episode of Antiques Roadshow. Well, there's that. But this is really about the creation of a clockwork vampire, as far as I was concerned. Basically, it's like one part Hellraiser and one part some weird antique dealer crime drama noir <laughs> that he pulled out of some weird recess of old sunday afternoon tv film watching (laughs) yeah clockwork vampire pretty much pretty much and you don't even catch on to that till near the end unless you're that big of a vampire fan Mm -hmm. you know you can watch some short films and within the first three seconds you're like oh that guy's van helsing and most people won't get it until the very end when the mailbox says van helsing um but then you watch this and it might not dawn on you that this person was immortal, only died via a stake in the heart, and had an apartment full of bled-out victims and bowls of blood, and was obviously sustaining themselves on blood. So within the first, like, three minutes of this film, you're told there was a guy that had a device that was made by uh, someone who was actually a real-life alchemist. Falconelli was a pen name of an Italian um, alchemist that went missing in the early 1900s. So it, it rings really, it resonates with me. Anyway, the beginning of this, the first few minutes of this. Um, 
And they're obviously some sort of immortal. And they're obviously a vampire of some sort. In the first three minutes, you're, you're given the key to this. Mm-hmm. If you miss it, or you're not paying attention, or you're just caught up in the beauty of it all. You have this man with alabaster skin, and this beautiful setting, and this really weird happenstance of how his body is found, just with his dying breath and his very last words saying it's time. Mm-hmm. Like, you can get caught up in all that and miss the fact that you were just told this is a vampire film. Because it could easily just be some kind of Methuselah thing. Right? We're not entirely sure that this is a ghoul or revenant of any kind. He certainly looks changed. He looks quite different. But he also could just be extraordinarily old. Yeah. It, it doesn't, there's no metric that we could possibly judge what someone four centuries later might look like if they should live at all. So it's reasonable to believe that this person managed to to live and if you're talking about well this punctured his heart i was like well since that would kill anybody literally kill anybody yeah. it's not really oh yeah it's definitely a vampire because i mean you could cut a vampire's head off and it'd kill it too you burn it and kill it you can kill a person that way too <clears throat> yeah exactly exactly that's the that's the real trick isn't it but Going into this film initially, I didn't know it was a vampire movie at all. And and I'm I'm not really the type of person that ever tries to figure out a movie. And that's why when I do figure out a movie, especially if it's supposed to be a mystery, I start getting really disappointed in it. Because I'm th- saying, if a dum-dum like me that's not even trying to figure out where this movie is going figures it out, I, I was like, people who love to do this type of thing are going to turn this movie off within five minutes. Oh, no, because they get off on that. That's what gets them fucking hard. Rock is, fucking hard. Yeah, they they figured it out in the first five minutes, and they're just gonna sit on that and just just vibrate until the fucking end of the movie when they can be like, yeah, well, I saw that when this happened because I'm, gonna, I'm the king. I'm gonna give this movie my Chronos device. Ugh. My favorite thing to do when I've figured out a movie is just mentally write that down on a little scrap of paper and tuck it into the little tiny fortune cookie that is my head, and uh, save that for later because mm-hmm. fortune cookies are just empty sugar so i put it away and i i let the movie tell its story mm-hmm. entirely i could be right it could be wrong and at the end of the day when i crack open that little fortune cookie that had my whole big solution to this stupid movie it doesn't fucking matter anyway mm-hmm. doesn't fucking matter the nice thing is is once we get this intro we immediately forget all about that because we're going to be introduced into our primary cast of characters gray jesus is how you translate his name <laughs> And I love this because not too long after, we meet the guardian angel, as it were. Yeah. De la guardia, which is just a lovely play on words. It is really interesting. And not only that, but Del Toro, what he's doing here is he's creating stuff in a movie that anywhere else, I would just be thinking, this should be in a comic book. These characters' names, the Kronos device, but delivered so earnestly. And everything is so normal around the film that you don't really notice that people kind of have out there writer names when people try to create like, you know, crazy character names that I feel like this is when you like encounter characters with last names like Steel and Everlast. You know, it's on one hand, I get it. Yes, I agree with you. And it's true. And writers do do it all of the time. Yeah, Yeah, That's why Willie Lowman is named Willie Lowman. (laughs) But when I was working for an engineering firm and dealing with a lot of people from the Ministry of Transportation, specifically people that were uh, dealing with the uh, building of highways. So they were dealing with a lot of like asphalt and tar and stone and sand. 
you know how many fucking dudes named Sandy I met? How many guys with last name Stone? How many people with the first name Rock or last name Rock, depending on how French you were? Are you like fucking working in bedrock? What the hell's going on? Well, that's how you make highways. That's true. Yeah. And no, like, what I just mean like the Flintstones. Like everyone has like. It was exactly like Flintstones names. And that's, that's exactly <laughs> what these men, so many of them had names like this. And it was surreal to me because the very first like, you know, Rock Stone that I met. And I'm not even fucking kidding about a guy named Rockstone. <laughs> like, really. And it, it was like, this was like a comic book. A really boring fucking comic book about building highways where everyone's named with these fucking supervillain names. <laughs> it, it does happen in real life. So. It, it definitely does. I think that me as a writer, I'm always so worried about coming up with a name that doesn't actually sound like a name that anyone would ever have. Except before is when you're writing in the realm of fantasy and then you do have to uh, concoct these weird non-names that I think that I'm naming characters out of some kind of fantasy-based MMO. I'm like, oh my god, like, what is with these character names that I'm coming up with? I'm always, like, trying to come up with, with, like, other languages, like, reach across languages and try to nameify things and shit. If you start throwing fucking apostrophes in the middle of people's (laughs) names, I'm gonna just shut myself down. (laughs) I did meet a uh, bartender's name, Sharon Beers, once. That's amazing. I know, right? That was her birth name. And she just sort of stumbled into the job. It wasn't like she was born and her parents were like, you are gonna be a bartenderess. Because we wish that on anyone. It's like a butler named like Jeeves Manservant. Exactly. (laughs) So it's not totally untoward, yet it does help paint a picture in our head. We have the gray Jesus versus a guardian angel. And he comes into the antique shop specifically looking to buy angels, which is so neat. And it's such good shorthand. And we buy it. And we're into this world and we want to know more about the motivations of these people Mm -hmm. because we instantly feel that we know things about them just Mm -hmm. based on their name that's definitely true Mm -hmm. jesus has got a little granddaughter named aurora yeah she's really cute Mm -hmm. not a line of dialogue except for one word one One word word. one word of dialogue it's all she needs but what she represents in the film is quite sweet and what del toro does quite well is just like it it really a lot of things are through her perspective and what i dig about the character so much as silent and stoic as she is uh, unwavering love and support where anyone else would be struggling to understand what's happening before her and we're not wasting any time with scenes like that people recoiling in horror because then they would be trying to quantify exactly what is going on here because no one says vampire. No one says ghoul. No one's all anyone says is that this is what the Kronos device does. And even the explanation about what this thing even is, is vague at best. Yeah. Cause they're only taking it at face value and describing, like you said, what it does. And they're only we're only really witnessing what it does. There's no real library scene, unless you count the book that uh, De La Guardia has, yeah. that antique book. But they don't spend a lot of time with it. Um, Greece doesn't end up with it in his possession, so he doesn't sit there with us, with voiceovers and dim light, paging through and, and reading and letting us peruse this book. We, we know very, very little. They know very, very little. And we don't read backwards Latin, so it would be useless if we got a good look at this book even. So it's nice and subtle and really kept very vague, which works better, I think, because it, it allows it to tell its own story. Mm-hmm. 
what we discover is that Jesus is the owner of an antique shop and he gets a lot of antiques shipped to him, acquires things through various means. One of the things that he's acquired is a guardian angel. Now, initially there's a pretty shady looking fucking dude going through his wares, not really saying anything, but looking for a guardian angel. He seems to unwrap uh, this paper twined statue and then seems satisfied and leaves. We get information that another one of these angels has been discovered. All the while, Jesus seems to be like a pretty chill dude. Groovy grandpa. He is a groovy grandpa. He's got his little spectacles on and his soup catcher mustache. And he's playing hopscotch in the lobby with his granddaughter, who seems just pleased as punch to be there. He's got himself a good lady wife, Mercedes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The daughter, um, the granddaughter is there just by happenstance, I suppose, because her father had died. So it's just basically grandma, grandpa, and this little girl. Mm-hmm. A really nice, tight-knit little family. Super happy, it seems, and um, doing well enough financially because of this antique store. They're uh, in the antique store, and we get to see cockroaches spilling out of this angel statue all of a sudden. Which <laughs> I love this scene, because if it had no score, it would just be like, huh, shrug, cockroaches, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But the score is so sinister you, and titillating. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. You will feel the menace. It with is this a music. spine tingler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it's it really is It's spine tingling music. And if you have a problem with cockroaches, you're not going to like this. And sure enough, it makes him wonder, what the fuck is in this statue? It's practically hollow. Yeah. It's full of insects. What the F? And so... He just tinkers with it, tinkers and takes the base apart. Within the base, he finds swaddled in cloth this golden orb. Now, you had suggested what he might think this object is. Especially the way that he's talking about it. Because if if you're watching this film and you're thinking, well, he must know what it is. This must be a common thing. Because he's like, oh, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He's telling his granddaughter as he's cleaning it up and, like, checking it out and turning it over and, like looking for maker's marks and things like that that an antique dealer would do. Uh, and he's kind of explaining to her how precious this is. He thinks it's a Nuremberg egg, mm-hmm. which before we had typical pocket watches, before clockwork got so micro, um, clockwork was big. Mm-hmm. Clockwork was bulky. Nuremberg eggs were these giant things. They look a lot like a Kronos device. It's what it's fashioned after is this Nuremberg egg. I've seen one on Antiques Roadshow. So while he's undoing it, that's exactly what he thinks it is. They used to have the men and women on big, long chains, like a pocket watch. And that's why pocket watches became so fashionable, because only the very, very rich and people who dressed in a lot of layers could manage to have a Nuremberg egg, because they were very, very, very expensive. They were always proprietary. I don't think there was a lot of mass-made Nuremberg eggs. Um, and it's a German uh, clockmaking thing. And they were just bulky as far as timepieces were concerned. And then pocket watches came in, which were small and a lot more affordable, could be mass-made, and everyone jumped onto that. So the Nuremberg egg fell out of fashion, and there's not a lot of them in this world. And they're all very beautiful and intricate, like this Kronos device. So that's what he thinks it is. But then right away, when the six insectile legs pop out, he knows immediately that's not what it is. Mm -hmm. And then he says, is it a toy? Because he's completely confused. Yeah, it could easily be some kind of clockwork toy 
from a few centuries past. He's not exactly sure. This thing buries those legs into his hand. This is where it reminds me a lot of a Lamashan box because it is behaving like one. Mm. It's about to tear a soul apart. <laughs> one of the things that I think is really cool about this film, especially the Kronos device itself, not only is the look of it absolutely iconic you can if somebody has seen this film but doesn't really remember it you can jog their memory by saying the little golden egg with the spider legs that come out of it and people go oh yeah 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 that one yeah i remember that or they can be reminded just from the iconography of this film so but it's the sound effects i love the ticking sound effects and all the clockwork gears whirring inside this thing i just think it's so pleasing to my ears to hear this device start to work, start to whir, start to move. Mm -hmm. To say nothing of the fact that it just devastates this guy's hand. Totally. Totally. <laughs> he ends up with a lot of blood all over him and gets his wife to patch him up after. But while this is all happening, we get that CSI interior zoom of the clockwork device in motion and see that there is a bug inside. It's fashioned after a scarab, which is an ancient Egypt symbol for immortality mm -hmm. kind of based on the idea from what i understand according to the internet which i've read a little bit on some etymological and entomological guides about the scarab being this thing of immortality um it's because the scarabs would lay their eggs under the sand and it would look like hundreds of them are just coming back to life because they would just suddenly come up on the edges of the nile so people started equating them with resurrection right mm. and i've seen honeybees do this similar thing i remember seeing a lot of my grandmother's honeybees had died across the field and i brought some into her in handfuls of snow and i was like grandma all your bees are dead and she's like oh no they just got out on a day it was too cold and all like fell from the sky and then snow covered them so now that the snow is melting you're seeing all the bees in the field just leave them don't touch them because once it really warms up they'll all wake up or at least some of them, if I'm lucky. And more, you could just watch the field melting and watch bees just suddenly taking flight lazily mm -hmm. from the frozen ground. It was really cool. Yeah. Cicadas can be in the ground for decades. And so like, it's, I mean, you're definitely playing with some logic here. I, this, this insect is, who knows how old it is. Well, if it was built over 400 years ago, in 1937, so it's supposed to be taking place in the mid-90s. Mm. It's supposed to be taking place in the future from 1993, but not far. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, somewhere in the 90s. So, yeah, it's very old. And that bug could have been found in some Egyptian tomb, for all we know, yeah. and made its way to Mexico. Yeah, they're not exactly clear what type of insect this even is. It looks kind of like a cicada to me, but or some kind of beetle or not even a beetle worm type thing. It's Hard to really see. It almost looks larval yeah. when they're showing it, which is crazy if it's supposed to be that old. But eh, the cockroaches lasted however long in the uh, angel statue. So That's true. Bugs just do this. Mm -hmm. And now they can impart their gifts to you. Oh, yeah. The change comes in a very subtle way. Well, Jesus seems to be pretty thirsty one day. But then he sees a plate of raw meat in the fridge like you do. And then he seems captivated by it, compelled, something that just might cure what ails him. But he doesn't go for it, pulls away. Also, there seems to be another problem. Motherfuckers come to work 
The place is trashed. You know, he sold this Archangel statue to Ron Perlman's character, Angel, whose uncle wanted to get his paws on it. And since Jesus has now found the Kronos device within the statue, you could posit that perhaps Angel's uncle is who is really looking for this Kronos device. Yeah, considering he has a fucking collection of Angel statues, which is one of my favorite scenes in this is when we're looking in the uncle's bedroom and he's got just reams and reams of these angel statues under plastic. Yeah, this, this dude's a real Howard Hughes. A real Howard Hughes. Doesn't really seem to like dirt at all. No, he's prolonging his life. For what reason? We're not really sure. Money? That's probably the only reason because he isn't living for love, family, the world, or anything because he keeps himself sequestered entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, but he seems to be well off because he's buying all these fucking ridiculously expensive antique angel statues. He so, lives in a big warehouse, so. Yeah, he's just selfishly seeking immortality, it seems. So, yeah. Because he, he knows more of what this Kronos device does than anyone else. Mm-hmm. He's either been researching it for the most of his adult life. You could maybe surmise that someone like that who is incredibly wealthy probably at some point in his life had a lot of power and influence, would find it almost insulting that they should die one day just like a commoner. Or maybe it is just the fear of his own death when he became terminally ill that he would have started to research this Kronos device. Or maybe he just wants to make his nephew Angel's life a living hell for as long as he possibly fucking can. (laughs) These two characters, and I wrote it in my original review, I'll be it briefly, was that some of the highlights of this film to me is that these two characters' interactions with each other. They hate each other. Yeah. Oh, man, do they hate each other. But Angel sticks with his uncle because his uncle's rich and it's good to be in good with him. And De La Guardia has his nephew around because you need him. He's big, he's strong, he's young, and he can go out and do these things that he needs done. Like collecting angel statues. Like collecting angel statues. Angel statues that he would have brought back to his uncle that did not have the Kronos device in it. But you could see that there was clearly a space for it within there. And so he draws the conclusion, rightfully so, that Jesus probably found it first. And so in an attempt to search for the place, in an attempt to search for the device, he completely trashes the antique store. Like, turns it upside down. Yeah, yeah. To the point that even Jesus smashes another antique uh, bell jar and i'm thinking you know might as well smash everything because your insurance is gonna have to cover everything so you might as well smash your most expensive shit but in the meantime what you better do is grab your chronos device and recharge a little bit because he's getting logy in between treatments it seems yeah it, and by the way he this chronos device well first of all he notices the next day that his skin's a little tighter standing a little taller doesn't need his glasses anymore he's looking less like a groovy grandpa and more silver fox silver fox but that's we, where he is but we need to accentuate the positive lydia that soup strainer's gotta go good because i fucking hate mustaches i know i'm looking at one right now across the mic but <sighs> hey hang on a second first of all i don't want the listeners to have any misconceptions i have a beautiful Trimmed, trimmed, neat. neatly trimmed beard. Not a soup strainer. Not a means. not a soup strainer. Uh, although I do know that if I were to shave my face, it would knock a decade off of how old I look because I'm quite baby faced. Same thing with this dude. Shaves his mustache off, shows his lady, 
And she kind of looks at him like she's seen a ghost. Like, she, I've seen you probably without a mustache in 30 years. Yeah. Maybe longer. Yeah, she likes it. You can tell. You can see that lady boner peeking oh, through yeah. that she's smile. Like, oh, hang on a second here. You look young and vital, like when we first met. Yeah, here, granddaughter. Here's 10 bucks. Piss off. <laughs> that doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. But it may as well have. She seems to giggly and happy. You know, they do seem like a, a very loving couple. And he feels energetic and he feels different. But also there's something that he's aware of in the middle of the night as his hand is just feverently itching and he just feels off. He did pull that Kronos device off before it was really done whatever it was he was doing. He did wind it up. Mm-hmm. And before it was done, he pulled it off. Yeah, because it hurt. So maybe if he were to let this thing finish whatever it's doing, maybe that horrible sensation will leave him. Yeah. And I think that it's a, it's a good idea. I can see why he's thinking that. Um, it had left a little piece of metal, like a stinger in his hand. Mm-hmm. So there was something like wrong. And he did interrupt a process, quite mm-hmm. obviously. So... He attaches it back to his hand and tries to let it run its course. Mm. It seems to be pretty painful. Well, that little stinger that... First of all, the legs themselves digging into you looks like it hurts as hell, like how his six prongs going into your flesh. Yeah. Then you have the added stinger. Like this proboscis comes out yeah. and it positions itself over the veins of your wrist. Mm-hmm. That's scary. Yeah. Because, <laughs> Already. And it's a very long hook and so you wonder even how deep is this even gonna go yeah into my wrist because if it were to go all the way in i mean i would almost guess it might even come out the back of my wrist i have very delicate i have a little tiny wrist it would definitely go through your wrist yeah all the way through definitely because it's huge this horrible thing Mm -hmm. so he is in almost death throes with this thing feeding on his hand Mm -hmm. is what it looks like um, and just contorting on the stairs in pain, which is a really lovely scene because he's doing this on the staircase and we have Christmas lights because this is a Christmas movie. Yeah, once. I like that he's got his uh, pajama top just all open, letting that bare bald chest just glisten in the moonlight. Yeah, totally. And then his, his granddaughter is on the landing and sees all of this. Yeah, with a glow stick in her hand. I love that she's got these glow sticks all the time. And... He, after the process is done, he stands up and he's just like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Must feel a lot better. And of course, that's where all the energy and, and all this kind of shit comes from. But meanwhile, uh, he, there are people looking for this fucking thing. Yeah, powerful, nasty fucking people, really, when you think about it. And by the end of the movie, you realize how powerful and nasty they are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so after his place is trashed, uh, a, a calling card is left behind, quite literally, a business card. That just says we're open all night. And he knows he's probably dealt with all sorts of people. People have probably treated him as a fence if he hasn't acted as a fence. But he's probably had some shady dealings in his in his many years. So he knows what he's he's got to go talk to them. He can't just sit there. They're going to come back. And he has his granddaughter to think about, right? So he goes to De La Guardia's building he has like almost like a fortress warehouse building it's mm-hmm. massive wonderful he lives in the penthouse right so he goes there with a box which we could assume even though we know better because we've watched enough uh, crime shows and read enough comic books that the chronos device is probably not in that box 
But he brings this box to them and has this conversation. And we find out that um, that Dieter de la Guardia has been chasing these devices, this device in particular. And he has an old book that's over 400 years old that details the building of the device, the usage of the device. He very specifically says that there is a precise and specific way that you're supposed to use this thing, which I find fascinating because I understand that what ends up happening to Jesus, there's a lot of monkey wrenches kind of thrown in there, which I think is really changing things up or uh, speeding things up. But also, he has no idea how to properly use this thing. He just seems to be doing it whenever the urge strikes him. He has no real idea how it works, but a lot of people don't have any idea how lots of fucking stuff works and they just use it, you know? So if you give somebody like uh, an iPhone and be like, use it to call people and they're like, I don't care how it works or what else it does. I can use it for this. I'm happy with that. Look at this thing go. Oh, bejeweled blitz. You know, like, so you give this guy a device and he's like, I have some pep in my step. Mm-hmm. I don't need Viagra anymore or whatever it is that he was, that he was worried about wrinkles. I hate wrinkles. If I had this device and all all I knew it did was get rid of all my wrinkles, I'd be like, hell yeah, I'll use this weird thing. Mm -hmm. I'll lick blood off the floor or whatever it makes me do. I don't care. It (laughs) takes my wrinkles away. So that's sort of what his mindset is. But he knows enough to just fib and he's a good enough little actor that he can be like, oh, this is a weird device. What is it, a toy? Like, Mm -hmm. why would you want this? This basically gets the dogs on him because after all this shit's explained to him, also explained why... This dude even wants it because of the fact that he's terminally ill. He's he's had organs removed. He's had chemotherapy. He's on death's door. He's incredibly weakened. And this thing he wants to perpetuate his own life. Once he realizes that it's not the device in the box after fucking Jesus is not even out of the building yet. He just put locks in it. Yeah, it was the locks that were chopped off the front gate of his antique store that was ransacked by them. So it's a really nice uh, slap in the face. Mm-hmm. and then he he's, he decides that what he's going to do is just uh, it's New Year's, Christmas is over he's going to take his lady and granddaughter out to a New Year's Eve party why not? yeah, it's cute, the granddaughter looks awfully bored I remember being in that exact same position with any event like this as a kid oh absolutely, I remember being at my second cousin's wedding just being all decked up in a little suit and I'm and I just remember being absolutely bored where you're just like wandering around this venue just desperately trying to be entertained while all the adults just like adults in the other room. Wouldn't it be more fun if you'd have stumbled into the men's room and saw some guy looking blood off the floor? Well, I mean, it might, but that's what gets Jesus's motor going. He's like, Ooh, blood on the floor. (laughs) And he's trying to really, he's trying to really be subtle about it until we see him crouching down at the floor and licking it. And this is where it finally clued into me. The first time I watched this film, that said, oh, he's turning into a vampire. Yeah. Instantaneously, what this Chronos device seems to be doing, changing him into some kind of ghoul. It's later confirmed in a, in a, in a scene not too long ago, but or not too long after this. But the first thing is him crouched on the ground, very ghoul-like, very animal-like, just licking this blood off of the floor. And somebody comes in and sees him doing this, and you think, oh, man, the foot just goes over his head. The guy's probably just trying to play it cool. Like The guy's like, I came in here to pee. There's a guy licking blood off the floor. <laughs> Fine. 
just just act like you see it all the time. Yeah. It's like the first time I ever went to a gay bar and I went to the bathroom and a dude was uh, blowing another dude in the bathroom and I just had to pee and I was just like, just pee and wash your hands like you just see this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Like first time I ever saw a homeless person smoking crack in a street corner downtown in a city and it's just, you just walk on by. You're just like, play cool, hotshot. Play yeah, cool. Play this cool. is, this is normal. Whatever. Yeah. Oral sex in public, in a public bathroom with everyone walking around. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Guy licking blood off the floor. <laughs> Do what you will, sir. But no, he gets a fucking kick in the head. Knocks him out. Hell yeah. Oh, we have an idea who this is then. Oh, fuck yeah. It's fucking Ron Perlman. Mm-hmm. Angel himself. Yeah. Guy wakes up in a car, his car, off by a cliff, and they're just having a nice little conversation. This is where you realize that... Angel has no idea what this Cronus device even fucking is. He doesn't care. Not even the slightest. He can't stand it. This is a dude that cares about begrudgingly serving his uncle so he could maybe get his beak wet later on. He seems to really want to have a nose job done. Yeah, speaking of beak wet, that's really the whole point of it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And once he realizes what it is after beating the fucking shit out of Jesus... He laughs. He's like, this guy just pisses and shits all day. Why would you want to prolong that? Which is my question, too. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I totally agree with Angel here. Why would you want to live forever? Especially when you're that old. If you were 17 or something, that's different. Be one of those sexy teen vampires. Totally. Everyone wants to be a sexy teen vampire. No one wants to be like an 80-year-old geriatric dying cancer-ridden fucking vampire. But this guy does. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Um but Angel doesn't care anyway. He's just going to push Hazel's car off the fucking cliff with him inside. Cause it's crazy because it definitely demonstrates that he doesn't really care about getting this fucking device or even what the hell's going on. He's just going to kill this guy. Because mm-hmm. he, he, he's... I was like, look, man, you, you're you going after this guy to get this device. How He doesn't have it on him. Well, that's one less pain in the ass that he'll have to deal with later. He won't be sent to go find him. He won't be sent to go find the device. Guy's dead. Story's over. Whatever. He even tries to cook up a lie about how this happened. He's like, the guy's car swerved. I don't know if he was supposed to say I was chasing him in my car and he drove off a cliff. But he does. uh, Pushes this guy off the cliff. Gets all fucking pumped up. Does like a little football uh, charge to do it. And then Jesus is down there dying. He just like fell 150 feet on uh, in a car. And so he's he's toast. He's done. He even has like a nice little inner monologue. Everything's upside down. What about Aurora? It's actually quite a beautiful scene. It is quite a beautiful scene. I like it quite a bit. And then he's dead. And not only is he dead, he's on the uh, uh, mortician's table getting all prepped and beautified. Which is another one of my favorite scenes. Like if you really like uh, Angel and Dieter's characters and how they interact, we have a whole different tone shift here into the mortuary where we have the mortician who is kind of a hokey-jokey yokel for a mortician. And he's kind of pissy because the widow had wanted him prepped for a casket. And so he's been prepped for a casket. And he's got his suit all flayed and ready for, you know, to be redressed as a corpse. He's got the makeup on. He did a wonderful job stapling fucking shit to the guy's head and sewing up the teeth, which is Wes's favorite scene. And then it's like, oh, no, he's going to be cremated. Well, <laughs> fuck. 
So uh, it's a comical scene. I it's think. a pretty comical scene. I like this actor that's playing this guy. I think that he's putting doing a lot of business. He's he's uh, there's a lot of flair, pizzazz in the performance that he's giving, even when he's when it's time to cremate the body. You know, he's spinning things around. There's an entire scene, and you don't need this scene. You don't really need it. You, like all, you could easily have the scene where he's getting dressed. They say he's going to be cremated, or you show the funeral and everyone's saying goodbye and being sad. And then you bring the body back and he's going to be cremated. But there's this whole scene where he can't get the the oven lit properly. He's got to go downstairs, fix something. He's spinning around his spark. Like there's all this extra stuff that he's doing that I don't know if Del Toro put in the script or if this actor was just, hey, if this is going to be my two scenes, I'm winning my scenes. Please and thank you. And it's great. It's such great flavor for a very modest cast. This cast is five people. Yeah, really. Like, it is a very small handful of people. And extras aren't really not Like, Del Toro plays an extra at the beginning, apparently. A guy walking his dog or something yeah. like that. So it's like a really small, tight little cast with not a lot of extras except for the New Year's Eve party. The New Year's Eve, that would have yeah. been the big... But it's it always... probably was a New Year's Eve party, for crying out yeah. loud. But... Um, this guy, I think that he might have been written like this because he serves a really good tactic of distracting us. So he would be distracting to everyone around him. So anyone coming into the room would be distracted. He's distracted with his own grandiose behavior. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't notice what else is going on around him. So when he finally does go downstairs, patch up the gas leak, come back upstairs, he reminds me like a Goofy from Goof Troop, like Disney. You know? <laughs> I so, could definitely see a... Uh, uh, like the wonderful world of Disney or, or like a Mary, I can see a Mary Melodies yeah. comic, uh, like a cartoon short about Goofy the Mortician. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like that's who this guy is. So he comes back up and he doesn't even seem to notice that the casket is open. Well, it's not a casket, it's a coffin, but uh, he doesn't even notice the coffin lid is open mm -hmm. and then he has to, he lights the fire, closes the fucking coffin lid there's and no, then puts it in. And there's no body. He doesn't, he, yeah, he doesn't, we get a camera angle proving to us, the viewer, that there's no body in there, but he doesn't look on the other side of the door of the coffin. Mm -hmm. and pops it in and starts burning and starts eating a banana. Good thing he did when he did though, because in comes Ron Perlman. Yeah, posing as a friend of the family and wants mm -hmm. to see the body one last time. He's just really trying to make sure. Like His uncle is fuming that he, quote unquote, killed this guy. He's asking all kinds of questions about, is was, was his heart punctured? Was it destroyed? What happened? Yeah. He wasn't breathing. And so, and I mean, his uncle bashes his face in with his cane and we yeah. know this because he's cleaning like a mass amount of blood off of his cane and we see ron perlman's face all fucked up so this is you know this old lion in winter's got something left in him right yeah a cane yeah a cane as opposed to teeth but now angel is at this funeral first holding his nose he's not breathing he's he's dead but then just to make sure that the body is cremated just wants one last look now the coffin itself is getting burned up for sure. But. Yeah, so when he looks in there, it's like, okay, he must be dead. But we know he wasn't in that box. Mm -hmm. So we get a scene after that he has escaped and he's out on the loose. Now the name Grey Jesus is pretty appropriate. Yeah, it really is. He's all, he's all stapled together and his flesh is grey. Deadly grey pallor. Yeah, it's, it's really horrible. 
and to add to that they had prepped him for an open casket funeral so he's got a little bit of stage makeup on too <laughs> which is one of my favorite scenes when he's sort of lamenting his existence and not, not not sure what he wants to do next and he calls home and has a little mini breakdown on the phone when he can't quite talk to his granddaughter and hangs up on her and then just returns home so we get uh what did you call him hammerstein hammerstein it's like a little bit of a frankenstein yeah hammerstein scene. yeah he he very much looks like not there's not like a one-to-one correspondence in his appearance but he really does look like hammer's interpretation of frankenstein's monster yeah he really does mm-hmm. um it doesn't help like it's stormy outside and it's he's backlit and he's comes to the door to his young granddaughter who's not afraid of him at all no but she's been here through this whole thing she was there when he discovered the egg she saw the first uh egg bite she saw him using the egg again later which was a little more bloody and a little more theatrical um, she's seen the changes in him and been watching it very closely and even his changes of, you know, being more virile and dancing, uh, and tiring his own wife out at, mm-hmm. at dancing at New Year's Eve. So she's seen all of this transition. So it's almost become really natural to her and thinking of, like you're saying, being a kid and reading a lot of these like fairy tales, it must, it must just be a character of a fairy tale now is what my grandfather's become. Right. She would just take it as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course, if you do these things, this is what happens. It seems that because he's died now and come back to life, everything has been sped up. And I guess this is what you're talking about with the monkey wrench in his situation that has sped up this process. Mm-hmm. Because he probably, who knows what would have happened had he not been, quote unquote, killed. Mm-hmm. He was technically dead for a little while. And so... This new thing that he is, burgeoning from beneath the flesh. This revenant ghoul of whatever he is. Mm-hmm. The uh, granddaughter gives him the Kronos device. Yeah, absolutely. Starts to rejuvenate himself. And not only that, but listen, his wife thinks he's dead. Everyone thinks he's dead right now. So what are they going to do? Well, for starters, let's just have him hide out. And if you are not sure if he is vampiric at all, it will all be but confirmed when she empties out her toy chest. And we already know from the last time he was there, had a nice little conversation with her when she seemed to be very worried. And, you know, he was just trying to reassure her that everything's fine and he's not going to leave her and he'll find his way back to her. There's all these holes in the ceiling. And when the light comes through the holes in the ceiling this time, he starts to smoke up. It burns him. Yeah, the sunlight's burning his flesh. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he has all the signs and symptoms of a classic vampire. Yeah, and so he goes to sleep in this box, which is proving to be a makeshift coffin. Mm-hmm. It's kind of adorable because he's hunkered down there with like a stuffed teddy bear. And a doll and shit like that. Yeah. It's actually pretty funny. It is really adorable. Yeah, and when he leaves that place, he seems rejuvenated, and now he's going back. He needs that book. Yeah, he needs to understand how this device works once and for all. Yeah, because this is just going to be too hard, too hard on him, too hard on his granddaughter. And he's already written a letter to his wife because he's not going to keep this from her. He can't just skulk around the town as a fucking wraith like this. Mm-hmm. He And he loves her. So he tells her in a letter what's what's going down. Um, he's got to reverse this or be able to live with this. Mm-hmm. Because if a guy can live for 400 years with alabaster skin, well, that's one thing we've left out is that it does change the skin color too by the end. So we know what the end game is. Mm-hmm. 
uh, of this of the viewer. But I, I, his his uh, silver fox hair now with his new gray pallor makes him look very anime to me. Yeah. 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 Because it's kind of it's become very hard to determine how old he really was in life. Uh, he definitely seems like an older man, but it's really difficult to tell these days because that silver hair could be a product of his condition. Yeah. Yeah. Bright white silver hair. His skin is gray and mottled and flaking off and it's just not a good look. So he needs to fix this before he can hang out with his wife again. Absolutely. He goes back to this fucking dude and Aurora follows him. She does. She's a plucky little goon, isn't she? (laughs) I like that she hasn't had one line of dialogue at this point. Nope. Well, she makes up for it in moxie and pizzazz. Yeah, she certainly does. (laughs) And he says to her, this is going to be very dangerous. And she smiles and nods. Yeah, I like this chick. She's cool. Yeah, she has a little glow stick. She's not afraid of nothing. Nah. So, of course, he uses her like you would with a little tiny kid that can get into small places smaller than you. And basically the food slot or mail slot in Dieter's fucking fortress of a bedroom. He sends her in there to unlock the door for him. So they can sneak around while Dieter's sleeping and try and find this fucking book. When he, when Dieter wakes up, when finally the jig is up, they try to reason with each other. It's not a, it's not a necessarily hostile conversation. Dieter, like, first of all, Dieter is not like physically, physically really able to, to do a whole hell of a lot. He's a very sick guy. And we also know that Jesus isn't a, a cruel person. Mm-hmm. He's not there to hurt anybody. He wants out. He wants to somehow reverse this or whatever. And because and, and he suggests, what if I smash the Kronos device? You destroy that device, you go too. Yeah. That's what he says. It, basically, the Kronos device, you, you don't really get the sense that if you destroy it, he'll instantly die like it's some kind of magical device. But if you break this thing, then you no longer have a means to continually inject yourself with whatever this is. So that's one way out. But he... But and Dieter even suggests, what if we were to share immortality? And because he doesn't want that, he wants out. He's like, even better. And so he'll give him what he wants, the way out, without destroying the Kronos device. And while he's saying this, he's sneakily pulling his dagger out of his cane. Yeah. Villainously. <laughs> Fucking squeaking that shit out and then goes to run Jesus through and does, but seems to miss the heart. So it's not to blame. Well, yeah. he's an old guy, and he's frail, and like... And a lot of people have misconceptions about where their own heart really even is. Yeah, that's true. They, they, it's yeah. like, oh no, right here, that's where the heart is. I'm like, eh, more centered than you'd yeah, think. close, but not quite. Yeah. So he has him on the floor, and he's going to take out his heart. And who comes to the rescue? Well, Aurora. Yeah, of course, because she has her grandfather's back. She's going to pick up that cane and smoke this old dude right across the head as hard as she can, which and... is just hard enough. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> for a little kid? Yeah. yeah. She does make up for it in moxie pizzazz and fucking skull clubbins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, That's the kind of granddaughter I hope that I have one day, a murder one. I like to think that this was the kind of granddaughter I was. <laughs> oh, I'll whack you good, I will. She smokes this fucking dude, and he's out. And then, this is the first time that we really see Jesus straight up feed on somebody. One of the last things that Dieter does in part while Jesus is lamenting his visage, he says, just pull your skin off. It comes Mm -hmm. off. 
And it does, and it's like this shimmering alabaster white opalescence. Oh, it's a porcelain light. Yeah, so he's got this huge chunk of skin missing that's white, white, white underneath. Mm-hmm. He's got yellowish staring eyes. The rest of his skin is gray and haggard. Not unlike the uh, the face of the father from uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who's your daddy? Well, that's what it looks like to me. And he's drinking this guy's blood straight up vampire-like. And you had pointed out something interesting that he is uh, continuously with this wraith-like motion, these very animalistic ways of dealing with this because it is all new to him. Mm -hmm. And he's not, uh, what did you say, sexily drinking from a virgin's wrist? Or pouring blood into a goblet. You know, there's no frilled cuffed vampires pirate shirts long shimmering hair it it very much is more of the vampire nosferatu or a wraith a revenant you know if you were doing um like vampire the masquerade yeah i was gonna say if we were larping yeah 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 yeah. like basically my favorite kind of vampires those i love the ones that are very monstrous i love Anytime you you insert lore where a vampire is super old and, and is now has more bat-like features or some shit like that, ooh, I fucking love that shit. I love that shit. Eh, eh, handsome vampires, frilled cuff, twee English countrysides, not so much. But when you make them all like just feral, like I love that look that he does when he's just down in his hands and... It just looks so crunching through oh, that oh, vertebrae. Oh yeah. Oh, it's just great. It's absolutely yeah. great. Yeah. It um, is. a very unsophisticated creature. Mm-hmm. Those are my favorites too. I do have a soft spot for the the frills and goblets. I do. Right now, I'm reading the Nancy Kilpatrick uh, Revenge of the Vampire King novel that features sort of a hybrid of these very monstrous winged. Um, mm sword and sorcery style vampires that sounds very cool to me yeah even in the first chapter or two you get a a pretty good image of this sort of vampire um there'll be a review forthcoming oh cool yeah now when they fucking file this situation under our because they're getting the fuck out of there ron perlman comes up into the elevator and when he finds his uncle's body well i mean just well Oh, it's always sad to see a family member that you love and respect just his throat torn out on the fucking floor. Now nah, he's thrilled. He's laughing. Yeah, I was say, are you watching a different movie? He's... Because his first words are Merry Christmas. <laughs> he is so happy. He does a dance, basically. He laughs. Fist it's, pump. It's all his now. It's all his. But then with his last breath, his uncle is reaching out to him because he's not quite dead, Wes. He could be saved. Yep. Um, so uh, Ron Perlman, I didn't know if you know this, he's a doctor. He prescribed one foot on the neck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was um, It was a really fun scene. It was a really fun scene. <laughs> it's great and, and, and a good conclusion to that. And honestly, honestly, I feel as though if Jesus and Aurora had gotten away, he doesn't even know that they're, he's still alive. He could have gotten away scot-free. He doesn't care who killed his fucking uncle. No, he doesn't. Not even a little bit. But then, but then, he smashes uh, uh, Jesus in an effort to get out of that building, surprises Angel, smashes his face again. 
and busts his nose because he's still dreaming of fucking plastic surgery for his nose. So now he's triple pissed off. Oh, yeah. And if that wouldn't have happened, they would have gotten away scot-free. But, oh, no. Now the hunt is on. They're going to get into the vents and, well, through the... They're going to smash a window to get out onto a balcony to get up on the roof to try and escape. Mm-hmm. Gotta love a rooftop escape, right? Oh, it's super, super great. Super very great. hunchback of Notre Dame. You know, I was talking about this when we went, but I found it very interesting that, and again, um, just talking about from a story perspective, I found it very interesting that you had Ron Perlman's character, who's trope-wise, the dragon, the physical thing that a protagonist overcomes. It's sometimes villains will encompass both the physical and mental challenge. This was very much a mental challenge versus and a physical challenge with two separate characters. That's certainly being the lead henchman, what his uncle was using him for. Typically speaking, you have your character overcoming it. Not that this is the only way to tell a story, but this is just a a very common way to tell a story, overcome the physical thing and then have a, a a philosophical battle later with perhaps some, amounts of daring do and then you end this character um people can deviate from that typically speaking the dragon type trope would be um a very cool character more popular character people tend to dial into those villainous characters a lot more a lot of people have a hard time liking the guy in charge i think it's because we're naturalistically against authority but the second in command people love that's like darth vader people love that fucking those types of characters right so in this case Dotoro opts to kill the brains of the operation first, and then the physical threat is the one that he's left with. I just found that interesting. I just usually blank when people start talking archetypes. I just really do. I don't know why. But it, it saves time. It really saves time because now we don't have to have four different endings. Yeah, and yeah. we can we can have like a nice uh, an ending go out with a bit of a bang because it is a physical challenge. Yeah. Um, and... And, and, you know, because, like, you know, Angel's a very, like, I mean, Ron Perlman's a fucking big guy. So, I mean, it's scary no matter what. Now, uh, the interesting thing is that Jesus is not demonstrating too much physical prowess that you might associate with a vampire. He doesn't seem to be particularly fast or strong. Perhaps that's something that might develop later in his vampirism. We're not sure. But for the sake of everything, we could probably just assume that he has the strength that he had in life, but he's a hell of a lot more durable. Mm Mm-hmm especially since his immortality seems to be directly linked to the Cronus device itself. Now, when they struggle, fall down a few stories uh, through the building, this instantly kills Ron Perlman's character. He's down for the count. And it looks as though that Jesus might have been down for the count for at least an extended period of time, perhaps not unlike when he got into that car accident. Yeah. But Aurora coming to his aid just puts the Cronus device on his chest and brings him back. Yeah, because she knows what to do. She's seen this happen before. Mm-hmm. Fixes her grandfather up. And in probably really the most touching scene in all of this. And the most terrifying scene. Mm-hmm. And the scene where it all really culminates. And you don't know where this is going to go. Uh, you are almost convinced that this grandfather, who's just been recently resurrected, is bloodthirsty and half out of his mind is going to attack his granddaughter who's bleeding. Mm -hmm. He's exhibiting even more uh, ghoulish characteristics. He's torn the flesh from his stomach. And you can see it's just white, 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 white. Yeah, his whole whole body underneath of his skin, we're pretty sure, has become this alabaster opal. And he's not human anymore. No. We can't trust that he's human at all. 
He comes to his senses and pulls himself away from his granddaughter. Thank God, because she has her one line right then, and she says, Grandpa. Mm -hmm. And that seems to snap him back into Mm -hmm. humanity. She's like, listen, if I'm going to talk, it's going to be now. Mm -hmm. I do not want to get eaten by you, sir. (laughs) Grandpa. That's all Um, it took. That's all it took. Oh, she's adorable. So that would work on me, too, if I was a bloodthirsty vampire. Not only does this push him away from drinking the blood of his granddaughter or just fucking eating her because he looks that animalistic right now. He probably would have just eaten her. Um, Or maybe that's just how I'd like this movie to end. That would be such a downer ending, wouldn't it? If he just, like, devoured his granddaughter. Mm -hmm. Be like Saturn devouring his children or something. That's what it would be like. Yeah. Yeah. But no. Not only does he not devour his granddaughter, he decides to put an end to this shit once and for all. Mm -hmm. Maybe he can fight the urge now, but will he ever be able to fight the urge later? How far gone will he go? Yeah. He cannot have that looming over him. And since he wanted out initially, perhaps maybe at the end of all of this, he might have even flirted with the idea of, well, this is me now. I guess I'll just... Continue. Sort of, but there's no guarantees because any of the information that was contained in that book is gone now because Dieter ate it, the fucking goon. Mm-hmm. So he's not, it's a lose-lose situation, mm-hmm. no matter how he looks at it. So he smashes the fucking Kronos device with a rock. Mm-hmm. It was a big rock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a deep cut uh, that my Batman the Animated Series audience will get. I'm sorry for a very... All them people. It's well, Emmy Award winning. Anyway, the um, the 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 point being is is now he can no longer administer his clockwork medication to perpetuate his own life. And now we see him lying in a bed. I love this because you can get a sense of what he might have looked like. Uh, he's all his dead skin is off. He's all completely white, silver hair going, and uh, his granddaughter just kneels at his side as he lays in a bed as the sunlight starts to pour in and then we see that his uh, good lady wife uh, is by his side as well so she knows the situation and he reaches out to her hands and as the light sort of fills the room the movie fades to white not to black to indicate that i see he's allowing the sunlight to pour over him he seems on death's door anyways yeah and that'll do them in if we know anything about vampires. Mm-hmm. Now, if anyone was watching this and didn't know anything about vampires, they would just be like, wow, that was unique. What a weird creature. wonder what happened to him. <laughs> Which is kind of kind of sad that mm. there'd be people out there watching this that would have no idea what a vampire does in sunlight. But, yeah, really a completely beautiful film. A really wonderful story. Really unsung. And if you haven't seen it, if you listen to this far and it's not completely spoiled for you, mm-hmm. then definitely try and find it somewhere because fuck, it's a good movie. It's really, really cool. Highly rewatchable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I was thinking about what a, if the audience member, what they might think. Like, what was he? What's going to happen? I like, I just think about like, he just like sit back and relax for Kronos 2 Daytona Beach. It's oh like the, my god! Yeah, it's the R-rated raunchy comedy. Like <laughs> so a weekend cool. at Bernie's. It's like weekend at Bernie's. Drag but... Grandpa around. Yeah, it's weekend at Bernie's, but it's more rowdy. <laughs> Unfucking real. <laughs> Speaking of sequels, *Pray Light Eve* two. I'm just gonna like. I sound so reluctant. I'm just like, yeah, I would go buy my book. Listen, Pray Light Eve* two. Do you want me to do it, guys? Do me a favor. Lydia is is an absolutely amazing writer. She is a, she has written a lot of books. 
and she's got a new one out right now. She's incredibly humble. She doesn't like to talk about her own work, and I have to fucking twist her arm every single time we got to do this kind of stuff. But Pray Light Eve 2 is out. It's a collection of short stories of the untoward. Mm-hmm. And if you guys uh, want to support her, and why the hell wouldn't you want to, Amazon.com slash author slash Lydia. You can not only get the book there on Kindle or a hard copy, you can see all the other stuff that's available on Amazon that she's done too. Yep. And I am ridiculously proud of this collection. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's going to be more coming. I think I'm going to try and do this on an annual basis. It represents all of the short stories I've written over the last year. Mm Mm-hmm. And hopefully next year there will just be more. If I don't feel I have enough by the end of next year, then I'll do it every two years. I don't know. But I really do enjoy doing it because it is an army of one production. It's typeset by me, designed by me, written by me, produced by me, published by me, everything. everything. So it's kind of your egomaniac convention. Completely. The title is an anagram of my name for crying out loud. So like, (laughs) yeah, but... It is a great way, I think, of getting your work out into the world. I heard a podcast recently with uh, Lauren Ashley Carter, and she's talking about writing a book and self-publishing it. And that, to me, is is a wonderful thing that people can do if they have the smarts and wherewithal or the money and the friends, because it's going to take one of the two. I don't have any money or friends, so it's going to be smarts and wherewithal. I'm your friend. Do you have any money? I do. Oh. Well, then. <laughs> you want to buy a book? Oh, you did. I oh, did buy a book. It's on its way. It's on It's on its way in the mail right now. I'm super excited to get it. What we did today, because we had mentioned it, we talked about doing this. Um, we're reading a little excerpt from mm-hmm. Pray Light Eve 2 from the story Jack in the Box. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting coming-of-age tale. Chris had described it, Chris from Bind Torture Cast, as a, a birth of a serial killer story. Very interesting read. We're not going to do any spoilers here, but it'll be a little excerpt that we're going to read because I'm ridiculously proud of it. I like doing voice acting. I love doing readings. If you ever get a chance to catch me out in the wild doing a reading like I did at the Room Morgue Dark Carnival or like I have around events in Ottawa, I I love doing readings. I've even read other people's work at readings because they were too shy to read it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I've actually been to a, a reading that you had done before, a couple of years ago, I think, when when you were reading a, a, a Tapestry. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Tapestry was really, really fun to read. That had a reprint recently in Memento Mori, too. So if you're interested in, write, in reading more short stories by other authors as well, mm-hmm. you can pick that up. And it is a gorgeous looking book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, one of the, the one of the cool things about Pray Light Eve, uh, the series now, is the fact that you are self-publishing. It's an incredibly large amount of work. I remember discussing it with you not too long ago when you were talking about the, you never you can never really stop selling your book when you've taken it upon yourself to self-publish. But there's something just so indie rock punk fucking cool about that mm-hmm. because there's one thing that I respect and the birth of this show, the birth of a lot of the stuff that we do is we don't want to wait for gatekeepers. We just want to go now. Now. We're ready now. We don't need someone to say, yes, you're allowed to do this. Just say you're going to do it. And whether you release this stuff online or whether you release this stuff on a book, however you want to do it, if you're doing it the way that you want to do it, 
you will always be satisfied, provided you are not necessarily looking for fame and fortune. And I don't think anyone that would go the self-publishing route really would be doing that. It, people who, like, you're creating this stuff because you have to write. And I think that's why the Pray Light Eve series is going to be something that can be ongoing, because as a writer, you are always writing. You're not a commercial writer, you're an artist, and as an artist, you have things that you want to say. And every time the notion strikes you, and sometimes, yeah, you write these short stories and you put them in a box and you forget about them, but why not, if you have the motivation, put them in a book to let other people uh, read them because they'll probably dig them. Like, we're going to give you the little sous-son of Prelude Eve 2 today, and I think you guys are really going to dig it, because I fucking dig it. So, as I said, this is Jack in the Box, and this is Jack, who is a very young boy who's found himself at a carnival, and instead of a boa constrictor in a box like there had been in the daytime, he's come back at night. He'd been invited back by a ringmaster to see the real show, and it turns out that there is a severed leg in a box instead of a boa constrictor. And there's a lot of confusion going on in his poor mind right now. And then he meets the girl with no legs who owned that leg in the box. Wes will play the part of Jack. My youthful exuberance shall be on display. Oh, completely. And a little narration as well. And I do the main narration and the part of Marla. You're bleeding, he said, trying to not look between her legs at the same time. Marla tugged the shawl back over herself as Jack retrieved his hand and rubbed it with his other. As if the right was glad, the left were back where it belonged. They clasped together, and Jack felt all at once like he'd done something wrong and finally done something right. It's okay, she said. Why, though? Was there something wrong that they needed to take your legs? She thought a moment, studying him, as if she hadn't really understood what he said. They didn't do a thing. I asked them to. I told them to. I was just done with them, and it's better this way. How can you be done with your legs? How is this better? Her smile caught fire again, and her eyes sparked to life with it. It's way better, Jack. I'll never want for nothing. My dancing days are done, and now I can do all the things I wanted to do. Like what? Have a baby. Learn to knit. Read all the books in the world. Whatever I want. Besides, if I ever do miss a spotlight, Ryland said I always have a place here. He'd make me into a mermaid, he said, and what girl wouldn't just die to be a mermaid? But you can't walk. As if he hadn't heard a thing she said, or as if she didn't know. Sweetie, I've walked more than you'd want to know and into some pretty bad places. I'll tell you, with these legs, all anyone ever cared about was me in parts. Do you know what I mean? He shook his head. No, he didn't know. When a man looks at a woman in a very adult way, all he sees are her parts. My mouth or my eyes. She puckered and winked. The boobs or the wrist. She drew in her shoulders, her chest popped forward, and she ran a hand down her throat over cleavage. Jack watched, and she studied his eyes. My arms or my legs, they want to be in one of them. Jack was getting it. They never saw me at all, ever. Not once. 
Now I'm all they get. Jack looked back out toward the box. A teenage guy with dark hair and a black hooded coat was reaching out, touching her severed leg. That's not really true. Until tomorrow. Until tomorrow when those parts are dead and buried forever. Jack inhaled the sweet scent of incense. He could smell the gin in her drink and the coppery scent of blood from her wounds, and under it all a maggot's ambrosia of decay from beyond the curtain. So there'll be no more show, I guess. He'd seen her show now and counted himself the luckiest guy in the world to be with her. Oh, I'm sure another girl will come along. One always does. This isn't the first show and it won't be the last. There'll be a girl that men think of in parts. She looked out to the guy with his hand on her knee. One who will give them what they want one last time before she can be free. Her parts will be right where everyone wants them, in a fucking box where anyone can have a go. Suddenly it was all too much. His head swam. It was not the bleeding stump in a soiled bandage, not the heady scent hiding rot, making his stomach tight and his spit cold. Not that there was a box that now held the most beautiful thing he would ever see. No, he wanted to leave. Not because of any of those things. It was this guy. This guy standing where he had only minutes ago was touching her, and Jack could not watch that happen anymore. She could feel him. She could see him. And Jack could feel someone touching him too. Thoughts of his teacher and her tiny waist, his mother's face, the girls at church. Jack could feel hands all over him. Every thought of touching flesh had ricocheted back on him. The light swirled and his head lulled, knocking everything out of focus. Before he knew it, he doubled over, wanting to puke. He had to leave. He had to leave now. Marla's hand was on his knee as he staggered up. She clutched a handful of his jeans and tried to stop him. Jack, she said, her eyes glassy with drink and pain. This show never ends. He ran through the clattering beads, past the revelers around the fire, through the cloth-draped stands and crowd-fencing of the carnival, and past the shadow of a man. A dark silhouette of top hat, coattails, and long, stringy hair was all he needed to know who watched him. Jack didn't look back, as if the fairgrounds were crumbling and one glance would trap him there forever. He ran all the way home through the dark town, in the front door and straight into his room. He lay there feeling his heart slam against his ribcage like it never had before. It was all he could hear. Slamming, rushing blood, panting breath, heart crashing over and over, her words a swarm in his head. This show never ends. That show may never end, but this one certainly does. And I hope you guys enjoyed that. That, again, was Jack in the Box, one story that's contained within Pray Light Eve 2, available now. Yeah. Thanks for putting up with all my uh, fucking pluggery here. Plugging the Wicked Library. Mm-hmm. I talked about Goddamn Horror Hound. You did? Some unnamed podcast that had Lauren Ashley Carter in it. Bind Torture Cast, my 
darling gem that I was on for a meow story show of doom covering Catsick Blues and fuck what else? The goddamn book. The other mm-hmm. goddamn book. Everything, mm-hmm. everything. Well, that's that's the um, the price I pay for wanting to do a show with a goddamn fucking overachiever like you. Well, thank you so much for lending your voice to Jack. You did a wonderful job. <laughs> thank like you. Like a really wonderful job. And I can't wait because we're sitting here right after recording that bit and the rest of our show. I don't know how it's going to end up, but Wes will no doubt apply some audio mastery to that <laughs> and tickle your ear drums. Yeah. Yeah. Punch it up a little bit. Speaking of punching, what do we got next for him? Next, we have Martin. Mm. Yeah, it's not a zombie film. It's a vampire film Mm -hmm. by Romero. Yep, that's absolutely right. We are going to get an opportunity to talk about a seldom talked about horror film from the master of the undead himself. He really truly is. And it's, again, not a unique vampire film. I like this a lot. And I'm glad that you've indulged my ridiculous list of non-vampire vampire films. Because I didn't want to cover Let the Right One In. Even though it's a fucking awesome movie. It's a beautiful movie. And I love it so very, very much. And I love it as a love story. Mm -hmm. I love it for the mystery of what is her motivation really, honestly, truly. And you never really get that answer right till the very last minute. And, And that pool scene is one of my favorite shot scenes ever. 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 There's everything about that movie is wonderful. We're not worthy, so we're doing these three films instead. <laughs> you know, as you were saying earlier about uh, do-it-yourself punk rock mastery that is independent publishing, you know, you got to hand it to Guillermo del Toro and his punk rock aesthetic of doing it himself for the most part in a lot of ways. And God damn it, people go buy his films because not he doesn't need it. I mean, he lives in the most amazing fantasy house i've ever seen and he seems to be able to jet set he goes to hamilton a lot yeah hanging out in the hammer but so he's he's doing okay money wise it's not about the money it's about making other people become aware of this film and giving credit where credit is due Mm -hmm. and not just feeding money into the theater system or feeding money into the studio system Mm -hmm. put the money where it matters into the hands of creators where they need it in a world where studios are really only interested in sure things uh, and that's a whole complicated issue that i don't want to oversimplify but generally speaking that is the contention even someone as storied and talented as del toro still has to work really hard to get some of his movies greenlit when something is a little bit more commercial yeah it's a little bit easier but these little stories of these films that he likes to make it's not boffle box office he really has to use his clout to get some of these things made his clout and his smarts too and people will make fun of all the del toro projects that keep getting cooked up and dreamed up twitter Mm -hmm. on twitter and off twitter Mm -hmm. It's because he has the freedom to do that. Yeah. He has the freedom to say, yeah, maybe someday. Sure. Yeah. You know, if somebody will back it or if I can, you know, figure out yeah. $5 he's, million he's, dollars of change. He's working his ass off to, yeah. like, like you know, another Pacific Rim. He wants to do another Hellboy. He Like, Netflix has his uh, Troll Hunter series that went really well and is getting opted for another season. So, I mean, like, the, he's working his ass off. <laughs> so, yeah, but you can be that person that's going to wait for these to hit theater or go and, you know whack off your fucking netflix subscription or go and seek out his older films and Mm -hmm. talk about them share them tell other people about them yeah especially if someone's is is like i like pan's labyrinth or i liked crimson peak or i like devil's backbone i'm like have you seen chronos Mm -hmm. 
now we have. I <laughs> am better for it. Absolutely. Anyways, if you guys ever have questions or requests or anything that you want us to cover on this show, hit me up on Twitter at Wes Deadairnipe or Lydia at Typical Lydia on Twitter there. Or you can leave us a message at spotterpictures.net or our Facebook group, spotterpictures slash Podcast. And if you don't want to talk to us, because I don't like talking to us, I can totally relate to not wanting to talk to people, share our show. Yeah, yeah, that's a big help. Yeah, just click share. That lets us know you like it. That's all we need. It's all I need. I don't know what Wes needs. I need some food. I'm hungry. It's time to get the fuck out of here. I'm Wes Snipe. I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.